Sydney Environment Institute, in partnership with Sydney Ideas and the School of Architecture, Design and Planning, present Climate Change in the City, with Speaker Harriet Bulkley, Respondent Robin Dowling and Chair David Schlossberg. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, I want to start, uh, as we normally would, by acknowledging and paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We have to acknowledge that this land has been a place of learning about the relationship between people and their environment, human and non-human communities, for tens of thousands of years. And as we think about how we might respond to environmental impacts and changes that we face in the coming years, we should acknowledge and consult this traditional knowledge built over millennia right now. Uh, extending back to 65,000 years. Knowledge that has helped people in this space adapt to environmental change and has proven resilient. Certainly more resilient than thinking about human-non-human relations that's been here for the last two centuries. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics and the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you all and our guest speakers tonight. Um, the Sydney Environment Institute focuses on a range of themes from climate change adaptation to environmental justice, from oceans and food systems to transition, uh, and a bunch more. We're basically focused on the environmental humanities uh, and social sciences. So we're very happy to co-host this evening, along with Sydney Ideas, of course, uh, and the School of Architecture, Design, uh, and Planning. So thanks to Meredith up there, Meredith Hall with Sydney Ideas. Thanks to my staff. Michelle Eloise and Anastasia at the Sydney Environment Institute, and a particular thank you to Robin Dowling for organizing uh, this event. So here's how the night's going to run, pretty straightforward. We'll have our guest speaker for about 45 minutes, uh, and then we'll have a response uh, for how long? About 10 minutes? At the most. 10 minutes at most. Uh, and then we'll have some time for uh, Q&A. So let me introduce our featured speaker. Uh, and this gives me immense pleasure uh, to introduce Professor Harriet Bulkley because I have been following, learning from, reading, using, citing uh, Harriet's work uh, for at least a decade. Harriet Bulkley is professor in the Department of Geography at Durham University in the UK. Her work spans uh, an impressive array of topics around the general framework uh, of the governance of environmental issues. She's focused both on the governance of specific issues like municipal waste and energy systems, as well as the geographies of governance itself, uh, in particular non-traditional, multiscalar, and transnational spaces. She's most well known, of course, for her work on the relationship between urban governance and climate change. Uh, she's really the world's expert on cities, climate change, and adaptation. And we should be proud that some of Professor Bulkley's earliest work was on Australia. So thanks for that. Cite that, folks. Uh, Professor Bulkley is uh, incredibly prolific, uh, in part because I think of her amazing ability to pull networks of scholars together on crucial, innovative, and collaborative projects. Look at some of the publications and look at the groups of people uh, who get pulled together. Um, simply put, for the general audience here, she's one of the most cited scholars in geography. Um, for the academics in the room, um, check out the H-Index, that's all I have to say. Uh, her impact, though, is not just in geography. I think one of the more embarrassing things uh, is that Harriet has some of the top cited pieces in my field in environmental politics, in two of the top journals in, uh, in environmental politics as well. So it's not just in geography where she has this reputation. So why that kind of broad impact, that broad popularity? Uh, because the work is original, it's multidisciplinary, uh, and it's just strikingly relevant to the world that we've made for ourselves. And while many have just recently discovered the importance of cities in the management of an adaptation to climate change, uh, especially in the wake of a certain president's removal from a certain climate accord, um, Professor Bulkley's been focused on this relationship uh, between cities and climate, um, and I'd add um, cities and climate and justice uh, as well for over a decade. Cities can be and are 
a center for mitigation efforts, and Sydney, I think, is an important example here. But cities will also be the center of the human experience of the impacts of climate change, of human vulnerability of climate change. Um, the and cities will also be the centers of experiments, experimentation in adaptation to the changes that we've already baked in. So Professor Bulkley's work covers the wide range of interactions between the experience of climate change, vulnerable populations, the physical infrastructure of the city, and the governance of environmental issues. Uh, this is the work that we need, and I'm incredibly proud and happy to introduce Harriet Bulkley. Okay, well, thank you, David, for that incredibly generous uh, introduction and welcome to Sydney. As David said, uh, some of my earliest work, my PhD work, was based on Australia's climate politics. Um, I was here and living in Sydney in 1996 and 1997, so it's a context I know a little bit. Um, but, of course, uh, much has changed over that time, but much remains the same, actually, in Australia's climate politics. I think it was the PhD topic that just keeps giving back because there's still always much to learn about what's happening here. So I'm looking forward to the discussion that we'll have around this talk um, towards the end of the session today. Okay. Robin, I'm going to find me. Middle. I'm in the middle. I am. There I am. In the middle. Okay. So um, today I want to, and there's a couple of extra um, Twitter handles if you need them, um, so do, do follow us there. Um, Today I want to think about how is it that climate change has got into the city and what does it mean when we think of the city as a space and arena within which climate change can be thought about. So not only in terms of how climate change is actually physically affecting the city and I will spend a little bit of time at the start of the talk thinking about that issue but about what it, what it does to our understanding of the city, to the meaning of the city, to the idea, the very idea of the urban. So that's what I want to kind of end uh, on. And although now it might seem relatively obvious that cities are somewhere in the front line of responding to climate change, either because of the risks that cities face around the issue or because of the contribution that they might make to global greenhouse gas emissions, if we chart back, if we kind of step back a little bit in time to the uh, early 1990s when climate change uh, was first regarded as an issue that cities might want to address, Sorry, apparently you can't hear me, but this microphone is really quite low down. Is that better? Yeah. I feel like I'm leaning yeah. in. <laughs> Can you change it onto this? Sorry. Um, you keep talking. I'm a bit, yeah. I'm not actually Scandinavian, but I think I come in a shoe size from Scandinavia. Sorry. Um, so I'll, I'll be over here and try and lean into the microphone. Yeah, it's working. Okay, all right. That's going to be my friend. <laughs> so I'll just try. Sorry about this. I'll just try and see what I can clip it on. I think otherwise. How's that? Is it alright? Okay. So then I can wave this at you <laughs> as we go. All right. Thanks very much. Okay. But if we go back to the early 1990s, then when cities first began to respond to climate change, the first targets set by cities were around 1991. In 1993, of around 300 cities met in New York to set collective targets for addressing climate change. At that point, the environment, or historically, the environment has been viewed as something that is external to the city. And Australia is perhaps one of the very best places to think about that. The environment was the bush, and the urban was a place of civilization. So this division between the civilized and the natural is something that in Western thought, and David reminded us at the beginning of of tonight's session, and that is not, of course, the only or indeed maybe the most important way of thinking about the relationship between environment and society, but in Western thought, that division between civility and the urban and the natural has been long-standing and was still the case in the 1980s and into the early 1990s. And at the same time, climate change was viewed as a largely global problem. So there is a very unlikely conjunction to reach where you move from thinking of nature as outside the city as being something part of it and climate change is not only a global issue but also urban. So those are two things that have changed in the last quarter of a century. Urban sustainability was a very emergent agenda, first on the international agenda at Rio in 1992 and only really part of the European Union, often a forerunner in environmental thinking 
uh, who released a report on urban sustainability in around about 1994. But today we've got over, I'm sure this figure has changed since I last looked on the web about a week ago, 7,445 cities representing a large number of people worldwide, around about 9.3% of global population who have actively declared themselves wanting to take action on climate change through one particular organization, the Global Covenant for Mayors of Mayors for Climate and Energy. So we've gone from a state where climate change is very much outside the city to one where climate change is in the city. And I want to think about that tonight in, in various different ways and what its consequences are. The overall argument I want to make then is that the city changes climate change, but climate change changes the city. This exhibition here caught my attention, uh, Venice Biennale, I can't say that properly in Italian, so Biennale, maybe. Um, and it struck me that I'm not sure, looking at this image, whether the hands are holding the city up or whether they're dragging it down. So is climate change here actually creating new forms of urbanism? Can we support, can societies kind of support the city as a means of kind of recovering from climate change to lift ourselves out of the water? or is climate change going to drag the city down? And it's this kind of ambivalence between the kind of utopian and dystopian idea of what climate change might do in the city that I think makes it so interesting. And almost that ambivalence is, I think, more present now in the relationship between cities and climate change than it was 25 years ago. So we'll talk about that. So the first part of the talk, then, is going to be about how cities are changing climate change or how climate change became both an opportunity and a problem all at once. So the, the sort of underlying dynamic is relatively straightforward. So cities concentrate economic activities and populations that produce greenhouse gas emissions. That's the greenhouse gas emissions in the world at the top there. And the changing climate produces a set of risks, in this case sea level rises depicted, to which cities have to respond. So you've got cities both being part of the problem, the cause, and also being part of the problem as being at risk from climate change. So on both sides of the coin, cities feature. Okay? But the real question mark is, what are cities doing in this kind of triangle? What, what is their response? Just for illustration of the sort of double jeopardy that cities face around climate change, these are figures um, bought from, uh, taken out of the World Bank's 2010 report on cities as an urgent agenda for responding to climate change. And you'll see that the 50 largest cities come third in terms of population and third in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions that they contribute to the global emissions totals. So if you take the 50 largest cities in the world and you add up all the greenhouse gas emissions that they contribute, that would be the same as a country around about the size of, um, yeah, half the size of China and the US. Now, these figures for emissions are from 2010, so of course they've changed. China's emissions have grown, the US has grown a little bit as well in the meantime. But nonetheless, the proportions are the same. So we're looking at 50 of the largest cities being equivalent to you know, the third largest country in the world in terms of emissions. When we think about cities and their risk to climate change, this is an index developed by two academics working in the US to look at where large cities with vulnerable populations were situated in relationship to um, a cumulative risk score of climate risks. You can see, of course, that many large cities are in sort of risk and, and hazard zones as well. A recent paper in Nature Climate Change, I'm sure it's um, something that will interest those of you who live in uh, urban areas subject to heat waves, in case any of you might be one of those people, um, looks at what the effect of the urban heat island has, has been and will be on climate change. So showing the dotted lines of what the contribution of the urban heat island will be to global temperatures over time. So in 2015, uh, the urban heat island is uh, roughly adding about a degree to heat, heat waves and and so on and so forth. So by uh, 2050, the idea is that in an urban setting, we'll be seeing a kind of three degree warming versus a kind of two degree warming if you were outside an urban heat island attack. So there's a very real kind of urban implication of the changing 
climate conditions. The paper is really interesting. It goes on to then look at what the costs of dealing with those. It's an economic paper. It goes on to deal look at what the cost of dealing with those kind of impacts might be versus the cost of adaptation. So for those of you who are interested in that side of things, I'd very much recommend the paper. And of course, um, Australia's capital cities are experiencing some of this effect for themselves. Um, this uh, report from the Australian Climate Council drawing attention to what the effect of changing climate conditions plus the urban heat islands look like. Heat waves starting days earlier than normal, um, multiple different kinds of heat wave days. The hottest heat wave day in Melbourne being two degrees hotter, um, starting 17 days earlier. Now, the very interesting thing about cities coming to realize for themselves and an academic community and a, a, a broader policy community recognizing the implications of cities as being in this kind of double jeopardy situation is what the response from cities have been. So unlike several countries and indeed uh, business organizations who may have felt that climate change was an issue that was too difficult, too challenging to take on, one of the most interesting things about how cities have responded is that they've said, actually, yeah, you know what, we would like to do something about that. When I speak to my classes and students about this, I say, okay, let's just imagine a group of actors who've got a high degree of responsibility for a problem, and they stand up and say, actually, yeah, please, could we have more of that problem? We like that problem. We'd like to do something about it. It's quite unusual in the climate change sphere to see those who are thought to be some of the major polluters stepping up and saying, actually, I would like to take action on climate change. So that's a very, that's a very interesting and intriguing puzzle from an academic perspective, and say, why are those people who may be the most culpable, who may have the most responsibility, also then for some of the biggest challenges in addressing climate change, why are they stepping up? What is it about cities wanting to take action on climate change? Why is it that they see themselves as having something to offer here? I think we can boil it down to three Cs contribution, their capacity, and what uh, are often called co-benefit. So in the early 1990s, the cities began to think about their response to climate change. On the one hand, it was a kind of recognition of the contribution of taking their responsibility seriously. On the other hand, it was thinking about a capacity, that they had got capacities to act, that they could put that capacity to good use. They could, um, they could take action. And finally, perhaps most importantly, the recognition that climate change could yield other kinds of benefits, that it was something that they could leverage other policy issues off that. So whether that was tackling congestion, whether it was addressing the costs of energy for lower income households, whether it was, it's not a word I like, but anyway, making cities more livable. I'm quite sure what makes a city more livable. Maybe we can find out together. Um, but all of these different ideas and of course, air pollution, particularly for some of the cities in the global south, became a critical issue around which this um, issue, around which climate change, was located and began to kind of generate um, uh, traction, political support, and flows of resources. Some work that I've done with a co-author, Michelle Betzel, who I started my uh, writing career about cities and climate change with. Um, recently, we did a kind of retrospective look at some of our early work in this field to see, well, what's changed? What can we see about the field? Um, when we were first writing together, we were really focusing on this kind of work, what was happening in Australia, in the US, and in the UK during the late 1990s into the very beginning of the 2000s. Um, but when we did our retrospective, we also had another decade of, of action to look at, and we could see quite a significant change. So we could see that during the 1990s, we can, what we retrospectively identified as an era of municipal voluntarism. Cities were taking action on climate change, but it was very much voluntary. It was the work of a few leading um, pioneers, cities, and activists within cities. It was largely voluntary in that there was very little mandate politically or legislatively or regulatorily to take action on climate change dominated then by a few cities, and either focused on kind of quite symbolic action or on 
specific energy issues for the municipality, for local government, and quite often internal, internally facing work. And so led by local government, that's why we call it municipal, and largely voluntary. That's what it says on the side of the tin. By the 2000s, though, we noticed quite a significant shift. And this is what we argue in that paper, which is in environmental politics, that um, climate change became an issue of strategic importance to local governments, and the city became a site of strategic importance to other actors who wanted to work on climate change. And the two things really catalyzed work on climate change quite significantly. We had the development of specialist networks around what cities should do on climate change. So an organization called the C40, they're quite active in Australia, they have members in, in Sydney and in Melbourne. Um, the C40 was actually started by Ken Livingston in London at the time of the G, a G8 summit, which was going to concentrate on climate change, and he wanted to have a kind of London mayoral voice in there, and they came up with this idea of gathering the cities together who represented the G8 countries to start with, and that network has grown and grown. But it focused on global cities, and it was the first time that global cities really started to take action on climate change. Increasing interest from cities in the global south then through these networks, but also through the presence of development funding and climate finance. So both climate finance and development aid funding started to, to become more associated with climate change and more associated with cities and sparked a whole set of responses there. But perhaps most importantly, climate change came to be associated with two key things that cities have always been concerned about, economic growth and security. We can think about um, that kind of the Al Gore moment in, the, in 2006 with the Inconvenient Truth, but at the same time we have Lord Stern's report looking at the economics of climate change and how responding to climate change, if we didn't respond now, would cost us more in the future. And those sorts of issues about the potential risks and about the economic significance of the issue became much more centrally onto urban agendas at that time. So now we have a picture which we can call a, a picture of transnational urban climate governance where we've got multiple different kinds of networks that have created these thousands of cities that are taking action. They're networks that are not only supported by um, some of the usual suspects like United Nations Habitat, but also by philanthropic organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation who fund 100 resilient cities, which has 100 cities who are all trying to work on resilience together. Um, and there are multiple critiques of these kind of approaches, of course, and what they leave in and what they miss out. And the detail of them, each of these kind of actions are quite significant in terms of what they're trying to achieve. But here I'm just trying to give you a kind of overview of the multiple different kind of actors that have come to the table. So you've even got private sector actors like the HSBC banking company who funded a whole set of work on cities and climate change, also trying to get their staff to volunteer to take climate action across different cities, and there, of course, is C40 as well. So private capital, uh, development funding, the World Bank, philanthropic organizations, climate change, and the city has become a place that many different organizations want to play. And it's been, what I want to argue here is that that work of creating this kind of climate governance networks with cities and all these multiple different kinds of public and private partners has both driven and been part of a wider trend that we can see across the climate governance landscape. So this is some work at one of the networks that I've been lucky enough to work with, uh, a group of uh, political scientists mainly who worked on mapping and charting what's happening in climate governance outside of the international regime, outside of the Kyoto, Copenhagen, Paris process, for what other forms of international or across-boundary, transnational um, climate governance is happening. And we found a very marked kind of pattern where it really accelerates through the 2000s, at the same time as these city networks are growing and this development um, finance and climate finance is going into climate governance. Um, and I would argue that the two things, the role of cities as part of this driving this new trend of climate governance as being outside of the international regime, as taking place outside of the negotiations themselves. 
And Paris, in a sense, is a, is a I'm hesitant to use the word culmination because I'm sure it's not the last version of international climate politics that we've seen, but it certainly marks the culmination of this trend. If we look at this trend, it's actually, it's possibly, again, retrospectively, difficult to see how the Kyoto architecture could have survived it. Kyoto makes centralized decisions and passes them all down to nation states to implement. What Paris does is it tries to collect all the different forms of climate action that are happening and pull them together to create a global action plan. It almost completely turns climate governance upside down. And it does so in recognition of this kind of trend and in recognition of the role of private sector actors, but also particularly of the sub-state and city level. And so for the first time, the Paris Agreement, for the first time in international climate negotiations, the Paris Agreement contains specific a specific recognition of the commitment of cities to take action on climate change. So that's in a sense why it's a culmination of this trend of the growing internationalization and transnationalization of climate change. Part of the reason the governance of climate change has changed is also because the problem that climate change is has also changed. We started um, in the 1990s of thinking of climate change basically as an end-of-pipe pollution problem that was creating a common pool resources challenge for it, something that we needed to solve together. In a sense, that is still true, but what's the most significant thing is moving away from thinking of climate change as an end-of-pipe pollution problem to thinking of it as a systemic transformation transition issue. So. Unfortunately for me, because I'm a latte drinker, it turns out that a latte is the worst kind of climate coffee you can drink um, because of its milk content, actually. Um, so black coffee, for those of you who are um, preferring your coffee as carbon neutral as possible, I can uh, persuade you to, to switch your latte. That's a good move. But this is to suggest that climate change comes from being everything, from whether, something's got a, whether supermarket fridges have doors on them to your choice of coffee, to the way your transportation system is organized, to how you control your energy at home. So it's not just about big polluting companies or how we generate electricity, but climate change has become increasingly recognized as part of our society into the kind of everyday decisions that we make, as well as the big corporate strategic decisions that are taken. And this is part of how climate change is changing cities as well. Once we start to think about climate change as not something which is a decision that we can take once and for all. Okay, yes, we're going to do something on climate change, or no, we're not. It's not that kind of decision. It's not the kind of decision where you think, okay, I'm going to go on a diet, and you do it for a day or two. You don't just decide to go on a diet. Um, I mean, we've all been there. Uh, unfortunately, it's the kind of new resolution that you have to keep resolving to take. You can't just resolve it once. You can't just say once, I'm just, yeah, we're 80% reduction, that's where we're going. But it actually means, yeah, okay, we want an 80% reduction. What about those fridges? What about that lesson? What about that home energy control system? It's a series, it opens up a series of new decisions for us. So at this point in the talk, which is about halfway through, which is good because I'm about halfway through, um, I want to kind of summarize then my argument that cities have changed climate change. So there's a physical material sense that cities have been a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions and they've contributed to the changing climate, literally speaking. They've also shaped the ways in which the risks of climate change have come to be understood and the kinds of forms of vulnerability that are present in the world in response to climate change. But at the same time, cities, as cities have begun to respond, they've actually shifted the whole architecture of global climate governance. Well, being a, an imp yeah, if my political science and international relations colleagues were here, then they would argue with me about how far that was, you know, just cities and there were other actors involved. And yes, the argument could be much more nuanced. But I would do at least want to make the argument they've been a very important part of that shift. And all the while, the urban dimension of climate change has also helped us understand the systemic nature of climate change as well. So in four quite important ways, materially and conceptually, uh, cities have helped to change our understanding of what climate change is and change it as an actual phenomenon in the world.
So now we're going to go the other way around. We're going to think about how climate change is changing the system. Or the ways in which we are, or how the ways in which we are creating and relating to cities are being changed and challenged by climate change. And I'm going to go for the bit of it that I know best first on governing climate cities. And um, hopefully not take too long on that. Okay, well, I think the first part of this phenomenon now is that as climate change is shifting and becoming this new idea of it as being systemic across multiple different forms of society, and as its governance is shifting, so too is the idea of the climate change city becoming multiple. So what kind of climate change city are we talking about? Are we talking about resilient cities, low carbon cities, empowered cities where energy systems are kind of given over to communities and people, or smart cities? All of these different discourses and ideas of this city kind of jostle around for being the kind of climate change city, the way to respond to the relationship between cities and climate change. But of course they're all partial, fragmented kind of ideas and images and ideals of the ways in which we might respond to climate change as a problem. None of them are a perfect idea of our future. And I'm hoping that I'm not going to upset any planners in the room. Geography and planners often go hand in hand. But what I want to suggest is that this sort of multiplicity and ambivalence about what a future climate change city should be or could be is posing a particular challenge for the ways in which we govern cities and our historical idea that we plan cities. The historical um, idea that we govern through planning cities towards a particular future that we can all imagine, a shared planning project and a, a firm sense of what it is that we think a better city will be. What is the good city under conditions of climate change? What is the kind of future city that we think would be an appropriate place to live? What forms of inhabitation, what kinds of development are appropriate? I want to argue that climate change radically upsets that idea that we can think of the good city, that we can share a collective vision, and that we can actually imagine the future city in this way. Planning requires a secure sense of the future to which it's trajectory is towards. I want to suggest that in its place we are finding a new form of government, some of you have heard me saying this before once or twice, a form of government by experiment. So in the, in the absence of a clear idea of how to resolve the multiple kind of contested ideas of the future city under climate change, we have to experiment with the city, to think about what it is that would improve the city under conditions of climate change. Some of you, I know, have seen this already, sorry David, but um, this is not the kind of experiment in a kind of controlled scientific experiment sort of way. It is rather the argument that an ex we are experimenting in terms of trying things out. And this was a very successful slide before, so I'm using it again. Um, <laughs> this is my roller skate cake. Uh, so this, this is the kind of experiment that happens when your daughter says, I want a roller skate cake for my birthday. And you say, okay then, <laughs> we're going to have a go. You don't then run your six-year-old's birthday party once with the roller skate cake and see whether everybody has a better time with or without the roller skate cake. You're experimenting in the sense of trying things out, seeing whether things can work, testing new ground. It held together for a sufficiently long time for the party, so if, any, if anybody's interested. This isn't the first time that this idea of experimentation in the city has been observed. Osborne and Rose, in their paper looking at Victorian Britain, argue that the city at the end of the Victorian era, with massive process of kind of dislocation, industrial transformation and urbanization, the city became a laboratory of conduct. Its government, essentially problematic a plane of indetermination. So this is a form of uncertainty which is not where you can calculate the risks and work out then what to do. But something to be indeterminate means that even with sufficient information there's still no clear sense of what is a good choice. What is a morally good choice? What is a politically good choice? And in our case of course what's an environmentally good choice? 
a domain where the criteria and techniques of good government were no longer self-evident. So we don't, it's not that we don't know how to govern the city, but we don't know what criteria to use to judge whether we are doing good in the city. Are we improving the city or are we not? So just um, a couple of extracts from different projects, one of which I worked with Robin Dowling and Pauline McGurk, who's also in the audience today in Australian capital cities, and one of which um, on global cities with colleagues uh, Vanessa Castanbrotto and, and Gareth Edwards. Gareth Edwards is also from Sydney, so there's a very high Sydney concentration in this slide here. Um, where in one uh, project we looked at 100 cities globally and charted as many climate change experiments as we could find in those cities. We found uh, 630 experiments across a selection of different cities globally. And what was really intriguing to us is that it wasn't that climate change experiments were something to be found in particular urban contexts, whether that was context of rapid growth or context of established economies, but they were to be found in all different kinds of cities. I think we just had two cities, um, and I can't remember which they were now, probably Kinshasa in Congo and Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, where we didn't find any evidence of this kind of climate experimentation. And then when Robin and Pauline and I did a much more detailed look in Sydney, uh, in the capital regions, and then a set of case studies around the Sydney metropolitan region, we found an ecology of almost 900 urban-based initiatives contributing to the urban governance of climate change. And we can talk more about that in, in questions and discussion later. But it's to say that this kind of experimental mode of relating the city and climate change seems to be very prevalent when you start to take a closer look at it. And what does experimentation then do? Well, experimentation brings together different kinds of entities into new configurations in the city. You can read um, some of our work here from papers that, this, that uh, Robin, Pauline and I have written together. You're bringing these new devices and techniques, creating new kinds of gatherings and configurations. So you actually start to change the urban material form and fabric. Uh, the slides here are from a project that we um, work with in South Africa, a group of uh, students and myself and other colleagues from Durham University. We run a field course to Cape Town region. And here is a, it's called the ISHAC project where it's mobile phones, it's pay-as-you-go solar, it's um, people building it, uh, local labor building uh, very small solar systems and a cooperative ownership model as well. There's lots of different things which are gathered together to make ISHAC work. And it's gone from having 30 households to something like 1,000 of the 3,000 households who live in this community having iShack systems. And it's solar power that they can do whatever they like with. If they want to power a TV with it, well, fine. It doesn't matter. If they want, it's not a kind of development project that must be light for education. This is just electricity for people to use as they wish to use it. Um, and this is happening on the outskirts of Stellenbosch, actually, just outside of Cape Town. But this is just to say how a climate, cha climate change finance and ideas were very important in kind of gathering the initial elements of this project together and reassembling then electricity in this particular part of uh, one city in the world. But th this kind of experimentation is happening elsewhere. So climate change is creating configurations around new forms of economy, new kinds of community, and new kind of ecologies. That's my new interest in nature-based solutions. Getting a small bit of ecology in there. I haven't been very ecological in my work so far, but. Uh, the kind, the, the last gasp of the Horizon 2020, the European Union funding program for UK researchers, has, um, has started a new project looking at how nature-based solutions are becoming integrated into cities as a result of climate change governance as well. But it's important for us to remember that this, although climate change may seem a ubiquitous issue, it is far from even. And that to say that experimentation is everywhere is not to deny that it has a politics. How, by whom, and to what end carbon is being made into an urban problem is a, is a political issue. It's a political agenda. So the urban governing of carbon can be done through multiple different forms of intervention by multiple different actors. But which ones get traction, who decides, and how that works really reconfigures cities is very much up for grabs. A continual political negotiation of what remaking the city around climate change means. And I just want to draw your attention to 
two different ways, if you like, in which the city, where are the limits of how climate change has been brought into the city? I think the first relates to the idea of urban consumption. Very few approaches to addressing climate change in cities deal with matters of consumption, whether that's food consumption, consumption of steel for the built environment, cement, and so on and so forth. At the moment, that is outside the consideration of most urban climate politics, despite the fact that there's this figure from calculations in London show, once you take a, com a consumption-based analysis, your greenhouse gas emissions from any one city practically double. This picture taken from Melbourne last week. I, was, um, I have been in Melbourne various times in the last 20 years, and one of the things I was not really astonished to see, because I kind of know it as a fact, but when you see it, it's different. You see the, the continual uprising of the city, the, the massive amount of investment that's going into rebuilding Melbourne, and I'm sure it's true in Sydney as well. But one of the very interesting things about climate change in the city is that it tends to be something that is done on top of the other dynamics that are also happening. The idea that we need to undo some of the urban processes that currently generate greenhouse gas emissions or indeed put cities and their populations at risk from climate change is something that has so far not been politically palatable. So to question a kind of growth-orientated model of urban development, to question where development is taking place in cities, it still seems to be off the agenda, despite much of the very good work that's happening in both Melbourne and in Sydney and many other cities like them. I think this then leads us to two different topics to which I've got about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to um, go through them quite quickly. But I think they're both very important ideas. For me, climate change also raises the question about what constitutes a good city, but also a just city. And it also raises questions about the meaning of living an urban life. So I'm going to talk about justice first and then the meaning of climate change in our urban context. So again, I want to kind of highlight this idea that although climate change is regarded as relatively ubiquitous as an urban issue, it is far from even. So these are figures that I've um, pulled out of the same World Bank report that we looked at um, before but we show that depending on how you want to take your analysis, you can see that there's a very highly uneven contribution of cities to climate change. So while climate change might be an urban problem, it's not the same urban problem everywhere. The difference between what New York might contribute to greenhouse gas emissions to cities in, in uh, Africa or in, uh, in some parts of Asia is really significant. It's orders of magnitude. And we have to think about the justice about how climate responsibility is distributed between cities if we are going to be putting cities on the global stage as responsible for climate change. Equally, cities at risk from climate change are very different. And it really matters how we figure what risk is. So these are the cities that you would see as being most at risk if you took questions of population and vulnerable populations um, to heart. Whereas once you put in assets, those cities change quite dramatically. So, you know, we've got population in some of the sort of poorer parts of Asia and assets in some of the wealthier parts of Europe, uh, well, Europe, America particularly, and Asia as well. So, deciding what counts as being at risk and for whom really then starts to matter in terms of how we respond to climate change too. But those risks and those responsibilities are not only unevenly distributed uh, between cities, but also critically within cities. Some analysis from um, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation's project on climate justice shows that wealthier households um, can emit uh, you know, three times as many greenhouse gas emissions as the poorer households. And some work that uh, I've been involved with looking at smart grid projects in the UK suggests that at peak times, wealthier households may be con uh, consuming maybe three times as much electricity as poorer households. We see that uh, wealthier households' demand really responds to peak electricity demand, but poorer households don't as much because they don't have the means to do so. So when we're thinking about reinforcing networks or building new power stations, we're really thinking about doing that for a certain proportion of the population, not for everyone. 
Of course, those people who are most at risk from the effects of climate change, like from heat, are unevenly distributed as well within cities. And as it turns out, as is so often the case, those people who are most at risk are usually those who are contributing least to the problem. And this is a, a map of the heat density in London, with the most vulnerable located in the middle and also out to the eastern side of London, where some of the poorer communities live as well. So what this asks, you know, what this asks us are, are the strategies that cities are adopting in order to respond to climate change of uniform greenhouse gas emissions targets of saying our city is going to reduce emissions by 80% or we're going to become a resilient city. Are the sort of uniformity, is that adequate? And in fact, will that create a kind of urban politics of climate change that's unable to take questions of justice into account? If Sydney or indeed if Durham wants to reduce its emissions by 80%, well then for some of us, that means reducing them by more than 80%, while for others it doesn't. And how do we deal with that? How do we decide on those questions of who should be responsible within our own communities and who should not be? So I'm going to skip those because I haven't got enough time. And I just want to just focus on this last bit about living a climate city life. Robin will like this picture because it's got some transport in it. <laughs> so that's good. Um, I was struck by this, um, this image when I was uh, doing some updating my, my work for, for this talk and thinking about this is an image produced by a commercial company in London advocating for the development of an all-electric future. It, this is the scene that it paints of a London street in 2030. What's striking about it, well, I mean, there are lots of things which are striking about this image. The woman is still pushing the pushchair. That's how you know it's not Sweden, by the way. <laughs> okay. Sweden's the other way around. Uh, obviously, it's not a very diverse um, picture. But of course, everything is very, very electric, but otherwise pretty much the same as it is now. And to me, this is a, this is a really interesting idea that our imagination of a climate change world is just like we've got now, but with a bit more electricity. That seems very strange. A bit more electricity from some different places? Okay. But what about other parts of the urban life that living in a climate change world actually challenges? What are the kind of fundamental questions of the urban that we need to consider? I'm just going to raise two with you now. This is from Sweden. It's one of my favourite things that I found out when I was, uh, me and my family lived in Sweden for six months. I found out that Swedish dolls' houses come with working electricity. This is because in Sweden you have to have your lights on all the time because if you don't, you're not being welcoming. And so you couldn't possibly play in a doll's house with the lights off because that would be sort of very, very inhospitable to, to uh, both the dolls that you were playing with and any visiting dolls who might come along. Um, but the question for me here is that. This is so, it's so normalized. I mean, and anybody who's ever been to Scandinavia or indeed noticed any lighting trends in cafes in Sydney will notice that it's not just a little bit of light, but it's a huge amount of light and very decorative and aesthetic it is too. But at what point does the lighting of Swedish houses and old house become a public issue? At what point is it a private decision whether you leave your lights on or not? If we know that that is, if we know that consuming electricity and lighting, of course, is not one of the major sources of electricity, but it's used for illustrative effects here. If we know that the private consumption of electricity is one of the issues that creates public risk, at what point do we ask questions about where the public and the private boundary are? The second thing, and this is um, something that I put into the slides in the last couple of days, because I have very much been enjoying a few lovely days in Sydney. And people keep saying to me, oh, it's a lovely day, it's a gorgeous day. And I keep thinking, yes, it is. But I'm not sure that I should be thinking of it as a lovely day when it's 23 degrees in Sydney in the middle of July. At what point do we say that this isn't a lovely day anymore? At what point does our kind of meaning and our experience of the city under particular conditions become something that we actually need to challenge ourselves about? And that, I'm not really sure how to handle that because I'm not, as you may have gathered by now, I'm not somebody who thinks in dystopian terms about climate change and I don't think that it's helpful for us to think, oh my God, what have we done to the climate? It is 23 degrees and I'm sitting outside today. 
But equally, I don't know that to just normalize these days as lovely is the right way forward for us either. So I'm really struggling with this idea of how do we experience the climate change city on an everyday basis. Its impact on the one hand, but also the ways in which we're trying to respond to it on the other. I worry that if we don't ask ourselves these questions, we might end up with some form of future urbanism. These are four pictures of smart cities taken from different cities in Mexico, in Sweden, in Paris, and in India. But it turns out that the climate smart city is starting to look very much the same everywhere. And this sort of uniformity, this kind of idea that there is one way of responding to climate change, one way of being in a city, is something that concerns me. Uh, particularly things that we don't let these guys be in charge. I've been very much enjoying uh, very, some of you may ha already be recording this because I think it's on tonight, isn't it? Whether, um, whether we want to let the guys from Utopia in charge of building our climate smart cities or whether we have to ask ourselves some much more radical questions about the kinds of futures that we want, the forms of justice that we think we're capable of and the ways in which we want to live in a climate change city that have some different kinds of meaning where we create some different kinds of norms about what the city of the climate change might be. There's a few points here, but basically this, what I'm trying to say at the end of the talk here is that despite you know, a quarter of a century of action by cities on climate change, much of which is to be strongly admired in the context of political um, uncertainty and a lack of political will at many other scales, I think now that cities have become accepted on the stage of climate governance, we need to really start addressing the elephants in the room about what it actually means for cities to take climate change seriously and to respond to it in a way that's both politically pragmatic and just and that allows us to create meaningful urban lives for many different people in many different parts of the world. And uh, this extract from Barbara's uh, talk suggests that if we do let the elephants take over, they may be able to create some different kinds of urban futures that we can't even think of. So I suggest we let the elephants take over. Uh, and see what happens next. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, brilliant stuff. Thank you very much, Harriet. So um, now we're just going to have a short response uh, and uh, we'll get to some Q&A. So first, Professor Robin Dowling. Uh, also brings her long-standing research in urbanism and governance and climate change. Uh, she's been funded for her research on key areas for cities of the future, uh, urban energy transition, mobility beyond the car, uh, and her recent work gets uh, at the next big impact, uh, as we saw here, that of smart technologies or smart urbanism. Professor Dowling is one of the leaders of the University of Sydney Cities Network, a broad and interdisciplinary group of urban researchers from across the university focused on how cities can be more enabling. She's been a generous and productive addition to that network uh, and its leadership. Uh, and like Professor Bulkley, she's a model of an engaged and engaging interdisciplinary scholar. So Robin for a response. Thanks, David. Um, and thank you, Harriet. Okay, I am going to be quick because I really think that you're all here to listen and to ask questions of, of, of Harriet. But in developing a response in the spirit of generosity, and it's one of the ways that I've tried to live my life um, as an academic, and, um, and I'm, I'm very pleased that actually my collaborators who are in the room is actually the way that we all um, work as researchers. I'm not going to be critical, which is what a conventional response might be. It's not... But what I want to do is really to build upon some of the ideas that um, Harriet's thrown at us and use a couple of Australian examples to sort of push the framework, or to illustrate the framework that she's really given us and to push it. And, uh, and I, I have to admit, it is easier for me to illustrate the framework because some of it was joint work that we did. But, um, and what I am going to do is talk about transport because I'm a little bit fixated on it at the moment. And what I want to talk about is really that I mean, Harriet sort of identified the opportunities and the barriers that, that climate change in the city really, really pose for, for us as policymakers, researchers and, and people who live in cities. Um, and I just want to pick up two points. And one of it is a, it's actually a really quite clear, I think, and this was hinted, I guess, is that 
quite a clear sectoral unevenness, if you like, in which parts of cities and which elements of the ways that we, we live in a city are being changed or responded to or potentially changed in the face of a changing climate. Um, so some cities, that, some elements of city governments, governance have become more amenable to change or less obdurate, if you like. Um, and the second is a geographical unevenness and, and Harriet really signals this in her discussion of a just, uh, a just city and a just climate politics. And what is it? What might be some, and as a geographer, I'm interested in how those sorts of activities of governance play out across the city. And so essentially, you know, transport is really quite what, what, what I want to talk about is obduracy. It's resistant to change. Uh, it's got, it seems to have had a, a political economy and a cultural politics in this country that have really um, been challenging for any form of positive climate governance, if you like. I just want to use quickly a couple of examples. So this was a survey that was part of the project that, that Harry talked about, that Pauline and McGurk and her and I did across Sydney. Uh, across Australia, and basically the thing I just wanted to quickly point out is that is the um, the relative lack of attention to transport as a way of like so this was around various ways that local governments might be mitigating uh, carbon uh, carbon emissions in their activities. And partly this is the complicated governance framework that we have in this um, nation, where local governments have been most active at the climate. Um, at, at the scale of, at, in terms of responding to a changing climate, but in fact they've got not much jurisdiction over transport. Um, and they haven't really been able to claim authority to act. So it's not, it's not even just that they don't have particular powers, but they haven't really been able or wanted to claim an authority to, to do something in that space. They have been active in their own operations, so they convert their fleets, um, they do travel demand management for their staff. And partnerships have been important. Harriet didn't touch uh, touched a little bit. Is that the ways that governing a changing climate really requires different agencies, institutions, private, non-profit um, non sectors to, to work together? So partnerships like the Smart Grid, Smart City project did see some transport stuff. But you know, we don't haven't seen much action in transport in the Australian case. Oh, I need to come up. I forgot to do this. Right. Um, but, these, so it, but essentially, well, the other thing I just wanted to quickly point out is that these changing climate governance activities are really minor in comparison to the prevailing cultural and political norms that we live in in this country, in, in Australian cities. So at a time, so the top graph is actually around vehicle kilometres travelled, essentially car use across uh, major Australian um, states. At a time when many cities around the world are putting down their freeways, which is the, one, the slide on the left, Australian cities are building more, especially Sydney, well Sydney and Melbourne I should say, not Australian cities, um, are building more. The promise of peak car, which is the top graph, appears to have dissipated and probably more related to a GFC rather than some long-term sense that we need to have. If I take um, Harriet's diet metaphor, it's like, wasn't this sort of daily resolution to not use the car as much, it sort of was like a one-off. Um, and things have gone back to normal. And the cultural connections between the car have been, you know, they, they continue. But that's not to say there's been another, a lack of government by experiment. And one of the experimentation is one of the things that I actually really like about what um, Harriet was talking about. I like to think, it's a bit of a stretch, but I like to think of car sharing as a form of experimentation, the transport, um, not only in how people relate to the car, so, you know, the idea that you access it as a service rather than ownership, but also in terms of new forms of relationships between local authorities and transport businesses. So it's a very uh, new, new type of transport business. It's a car share organisation. It's not your traditional uh, public transport um, organisation or a car company, etc. And that car sharing is being regulated and facilitated <coughs> through conventional means, through parking, but I won't get into that. But interesting, so there's been some experimentation that you might think of car sharing as one. But there's important questions about distribution across the city. So this is just a simple map a few years ago now of where car shares were car share cars were located across the city. Which actually, if I was to overlay a map of public transport accessibility, they're basically all the same. And so what the car share might be doing is actually exacerbating transport disadvantage. It's a bit like it's catering to the to those who are already well served by a variety of means of transport and not necessarily those who would need different non-car forms of transport in, in the end. 
But there is some capacity to act, I just want to use that um, example. So essentially, I'm not going to say anything else except to say that Harriet's given us an incredible array of examples um, of how cities are governing climate, addressing climate change mitigation and adaptation. And I know there's people in this room who are working on both of those. She's also given us a sense of the, of the challenges of climate change for urban, for urban life and for urban governance, whether that be making a daily resolution to live renewable, to experiment with solutions. And with experiment, I think the important thing that, that comes out of that metaphor of experimentation is that with experimentation comes the risk of failure, but also the possibility of learning. And being able to take that risk is quite important. So it's that sense of experimentation, of taking risks, that I find um, exciting and I'm pleased to have heard more about tonight. And I'm looking forward to your questions after this.